Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. I hope you've had a wonderful week. Sorry I wasn't with you live last week. I, I did have a lovely week uh, working somewhere else, Matera, which maybe I'll talk to you a little bit about. It was with Isa uh, in Italy and it was a truly, truly fabulous week. I highly suggest you visit Matera, a wonderful part of southern Italy. But here with me in the studio back in Luxembourg, I'm delighted to be here once more. As always with my colleague Sasha Keogh, we'll have a look back at the week. I also have the ambassador of Belgium to Luxembourg. Wonderful to have you here with us, Ambassador. We're going to delve into some of the the connections between Belgium and Luxembourg in, a, in our conversation. And also Anoush from the Luxembourg Tech School. Hello, Anoush. Hello. It's great to have you all here in the studio. And as always, I'm going to start with, uh, with you, Sasha. So we're going to... Um, I'm just checking if my microphone's okay. It's okay. There we yep. go. Sorry, there was a sound issue on my side. Sasha, a reflection of the week's news. We have to start by talking about the local elections. Yes, so this was uh, on ha- the local elections happened on Sunday. And, um, you know, we talked about them in the run up to the elections quite often because obviously it was quite a big step because the uh, government changed the laws for uh, non Luxembourgers to vote. So previously you'd had to live here in Luxembourg for five years. And uh, so now, so they were really pushing uh, foreigners to vote. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the numbers of how many people actually voted. Yeah, I was um, trying to find that too. We don't have the statistics no, yet. <laughs> I know 50,000 people registered to vote and uh, foreigners. This, yeah. um, so I don't know how many people did vote. I mean, in theory, once you've registered, you are actually obliged to vote. I know. I know. And if you don't vote, do we get fined? Well, apparently. Oh. Uh, apparently it's possible. But then I kind of read that it's not happened very often. That, <laughs> uh, also amongst Luxembourgers who, who do have to vote, um, that you do actually get fined. But in theory, there is a, a voting mandate. Um so uh, it was very exciting. Happened on on Sunday, and it was also new that quite a few non Luxembourgish MPs uh, stood yeah, for elections. That's right, but not so many of them got voted in. Not many got voted in. Yes. No, so that's interesting. Mm. I mean, that, sorry, I shouldn't call them MPs because these were people um, standing for the, to local work, communal to, to work elections. for the uh, local council. And also, not many women got elected. Mm-hmm. I saw that too. Yeah. So that was that was very a very very low uh, number. But having said all that, um, basically the status quo is, as far as I can make out, pretty much the same. So the big winners were the Democratic Party, which is the party of Xavier Bettel, and the big losers were actually the Greens, um, who yes, did lose some seats, which mm. is which is very interesting. And CSFAO? Yeah, they have the most number of actual seats. Mm-hmm. And so now, of course, it's uh, because we have coalition politics in Luxembourg. Yes. So now all the sort of new and old coalitions are, you know, getting back together or making new coalitions in on all the local councils. So, for example, Luxembourg City uh, will be the same coalition, which is the Conservatives and the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And the Mayor, Lady Polfer, stays the same. She has been in that job for a very long time. Yes, I think since Xavier Bettel uh, moved from being the yeah. Luxembourg mayor to being our prime minister. So, yes, it's 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 interesting. Once, once I, don't, I don't know if there's a mandate how long you can stay. Do you know this? I, I don't, don't know. know. I there's no cap on it. There's no cap on it. Seemingly not. Seemingly not. And also LSAP, that pretty much remained unchanged from 2017. Yes, exactly. So the Socialist Party, uh, yeah, pr- pretty much stayed stayed stable. So, yeah, there's no, I mean, there were no huge ructions. I don't think mm. anyone ex- was expecting anything, but they. I think they've been closely watched by our station and by, uh, you know, a lot of uh, foreigners because you kind of feel a bit more involved. And is it true that this gives us a flavour of how people might vote for the national elections? Yes, I, th- I believe it does. Yes, exactly. Because a lot of the uh, people who sit on the councils actually have a double mandate and are sitting MPs. So out of, uh, I think, there are, there are out of 60 people who have a double mandate. So it's that, again, that's that's very high. Now, moving continents, moving across the waters... Again, I always don't like to give a maritime. <laughs> However, 
Donald Trump has been in the news. We have to talk about him. Well, yes, I think I wrote last night, uh, this week, we're going to not just talk about one populist, but three. three. Yeah, oh, we have, yeah, um, we have to triumph the yes. <laughs> so, so let's start with Trump, um, who obviously was in court um, earlier this week. Obviously. But, no, I mean, but it was quite, quite well reported yes. that he was going to court. And um, this was on the eve of his 77. Birthday, um, so he's he's on the charges against him are that he uh, has secret you uh, doc- stashes documents <laughs> that he's hidden in his residence in Florida, but it's Wasn't all it in the places, shower, in the shower. Yeah. yes, yes, in various places and showers. And um, why you'd keep documents? These are classified documents. Well, in a shower. You know, there is no question that uh, you know, that these are classified documents that he has absolutely no right to have outside uh, in his home. And um, but the funny thing is, he they, they were saying this is a nightmare for his lawyers because he's kind of totally admitted to it. He's like, well, I didn't have time to go through them. Yeah, that was the other thing. Yeah. I didn't have time to read them, so <laughs> I thought I'd bring them home, home. Yes. <laughs> put and them in my assess. shower, one of my many showers, I'm sure. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And and of course, then he gave this speech, uh, you know, in the evening in New Jersey um, at his golf club, which um, obviously he doesn't admit uh, to, to anything or express any regret or sadness or anything, but says it's a stitch up. It's a stitch up by uh, Joe Biden and his Marxist fellows. And it was a real... Um, electioneering speech really I mean he is still the favourite Republican nominee and um, you know the big question is this is this is the first time that uh, a city or a former president has had to appear in front of a federal judge will it make a difference and that's the saddest part of all I have this quote here from uh, why he didn't read the documents Um, I didn't have time to go through them I have a busy life oh I love that (laughs) We, one would hope that any, you know, president would have a busy life, but would make time to read official important documents. Anyhow, so I mean, journalists say, well, he has a very busy life because he is playing golf every day. I know, I know, <laughs> I know on one of his many golf courses. So moving from one to the other, Boris Johnson has also been in the news. Yes, exactly. So uh, uh, the... Uh, Former Prime Minister. Though I, d- the, I really don't the compare UK. the two. No, but, I mean, exactly. Yeah. We, sh- we shouldn't compare yeah. them. But, you know, he, he also is more on the populist side, maybe. Uh, anyways, and, and has an interesting relationship with the truth. Let's put it that way. Um, and uh, so, <laughs> yes, he, he resigned as a, as a member of Parliament, which was quite a surprise before the results of a parliamentary inquiry came out. Um, and the parliamentary inquiry was into, it, well, it's, it's an ongoing three-year inquiry into the handling of the government about co- the COVID. But in particular... Uh, it has come out with uh, the Partygate allegations against Boris Johnson, um, you know, which were the causes why he resigned as a prime minister. And um, he was obviously given an advance copy and they have found that he misled Parliament and, you know, that he basically lied. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, he's saying this is a stitch up uh, and it's a, it's a nonsense. He completely denies it. But he he doesn't have to justify by resigning as a member of Parliament. Mm. He doesn't have to res- to justify himself in Parliament. So again, the the is this the end of Boris Johnson's political career? Will he make some kind of comeback at some point? You know, let's wait and see. Mm. Um, it's very, it's very sad. interesting. Yeah, because while all of that was going on, we have very sad stories of people who were not able to visit ailing Absolutely. children, people who died, only three people could attend funerals, etc. So there's a really sad counter set of stories. I think that's why this. people feel very angry about yeah. this particular um, issue, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. the idea that the people who were telling us that we couldn't do things um, were actually taking the rules very lightly, that, that that is a tough one to swallow. Yeah, yeah, it is. And then from... This, uh, you said we have a triumvirate. So, yeah, we should mention Berlusconi. Yes, I was going to ask, actually, if you'd ever met Berlusconi. In oh, your... I, I never had the, the, the pleasure or the honour to, <laughs> no. to, to meet with Mr. Berlusconi. I never served in Italy. Ah, right. Yeah. I just thought on the yeah. off chance you Did might Did you ever meet a... Trump? 
Uh, no, I, I never met uh, Mr. Trump. I served in Washington, D.C. Yes. I, I was a direct witness to his first um, eight months uh, and I saw all the changes. It was fascinating. Uh, but I never met with Mr. Trump. With Mr. Biden, however, yes, and uh, very briefly with Mr. Obama. Oh, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But going back to Berlusconi, we should... Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the former uh, Prime Minister of Italy, Silvio Berlusconi, died on Monday, aged 86. And he was Italy's longest serving um, Prime Minister. And, you know, loathed and loved in equal measure, I, I, I would say was a kind of fair assessment. Um, you know, many people thought he was fantastic you know he he liberalized he he was a liberalized the media which before he arrived was just one state media outlet and then and that's how you know he totally liberalized media and became very rich from yeah, it very um, rich and then obviously used it for his own political purposes um but you know he was re-elected three times um is very famous for many controversies and many court cases mm. and you know for many aspects of his personal life, let's put it that way. Um, but uh, so he had a state funeral on, on Wednesday and um, and a full day of mourning. It was, a, um, you know, d- declared by the government, which was also very criticised mm. uh, by the left. And uh, but the, you know, the state funeral was amazing. I mean, he he um, had a villa outside Milan and was brought in this very ornate coffin up to Milan, you know, cathedral, his body. And, uh, you know, the, the the big square outside the cathedral had huge screens outside. There were thousands of people there. Um, you know, they, they kind of said this was more like for a, some kind of... Um, pop star you yeah. know that, that well, you would expect was. but he almost was and there was a lot of for example football fans because he obviously used to own AC Milan yeah um so can you imagine uh, you know a leader of a country owning a football club <laughs> it's extraordinary really I mean, he had sold it not in Belgium no <laughs> no I possibly imagine <laughs> uh, that's true and interesting the international dignitaries who were there or not there in fact there was uh, there were very few yes uh, and an odd assortment. Yes. So Vic, uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was there, uh, the uh, Sheikh from Qatar, yeah. and the Iraqi uh, president, um, and and that was pretty much it on a sort of international representation. Almost I mean, as many international dignitaries as wives. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, I mean the, yeah. I mean of course the tabloid media. You know. I mean the they were all kind of comparing because his girlfriend uh, that he I think married in some but it's not a legal ceremony last year uh, you know it's the same age as his children they were holding hands so I mean all the cameras were very much uh, she's 33 yes and a very young lady for somebody who I think was about 87 oh yeah (laughs) yes Yes, he was quite a lot older but he's not alone I mean this week we've been laughing at um, older fathers you know people like Al Pacino he's just had a 83 83. I know Um, know, Robert De Niro is 79 so it's obviously the way to go (laughs) if you're rich enough yeah the bank balance there was about 7 billion I think dollars for Berlusconi yes that's the other thing that has to be mentioned is Berlusconi was Italy's richest man so Mm. you know it's it's uh, but it's, I suppose, an end of an era, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe, I mean, he was so famous for these gaffes, in international gaffes at, at summits and things. I, I don't know whether people, you know, politicians did find them amusing. But I mean, the stories that have I've listened to this week, they are amusing in, in, in yeah, hindsight. And it's nice to have some humour in yes. life. But yeah, above board humour. Um, <laughs> I know at my old university, one of the old directors of studies, she wrote a book and she alluded to an Italian prime minister who tried to pay for his daughter to come to the university. But it wasn't accepted, of course, but um, it was alluded to as if it might be this person. <laughs> I think yes. that may have happened. But uh, anyway, there we go. If you have that kind of money, you can... Um, yeah. You can try to bribe, <laughs> which I'm sure he probably did. Anyway, moving moving from that story, um, well, there's a few other stories, but um, let's move to a, a positive story. The children who survived 40 days in the jungle, this in Colombia, this was a, a very sad story, but also a magnificent story. It was, wasn't it? Mm. I, I have to say I was following it um, because obviously the... the, the 
children have been lost in this Colombian jungle, very deep, for 40 days. Yeah. And, you know, you every now and again, you would see a news story uh, after this plane crashed in, in the Colombian jungle, saying uh, that uh, the search parties are still looking. And you know how you sort of see it and you think, God, I wonder, you know, uh, it's been 20 days, it's been... Th- um, and... I mean, a miracle, a rescue after 40 days. These four children were found and um, I, th- there's got to be a film made of it. You know, yeah. the, the oldest was 13 and the youngest was one. Yeah, and so the two older siblings kind of looked after the young ones and they they said that, of course, um, the b- because they're of indigenous origin, that the older two, especially the the, the girl, the oldest girl who's thirteen, um, had a, quite a good knowledge of survival techniques in the jungle. She also knew what kind of berries you could eat. But the mother was still alive at the beginning. That's uh, right. Allegedly, yeah. That's yes. right. Apparently, she was alive for about four days, yeah. from what I've read, and she told the children to go off and survive it's and leave really her. Sad, Can you imagine a mother saying that? No, no, that is really, really sad. Yes, I mean, there are some tragic aspects of the story. Everyone's kind of concentrating on the the survival. And and people have questioned why were they not found before and apparently the sniffer dogs and everything came very close but the children were hiding because they were scared for some reason of probably the dogs actually. They, they may have been scared of the dogs. I don't know but You read different things. Yeah, I, I read really... that they were hiding when they saw the helicopters because yeah. they were afraid that, that they would be punished for running away but I mean who knows I don't know. They had to drop uh, loudspeakers in the jungle saying stay where you are do not stop moving around. Yeah. And uh, and we're here to help you. Yes, yes. And they also had loudspeakers with their grandmother's voice and things like this, apparently. So you're right. I'm sure a movie will be made of this, but thank goodness they have been found. And of course, now the the search has gone to the dog because yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the dog that found them on the 18th of May and stayed with them. Um, and, that you know, that, that that rescue dog called Wilson is now missing. And um, I, I found this very sweet that the Colombian army have said, we never leave a comrade behind. Aww. So they're, they're, you know, the 100 um, uh, soldiers are still looking for this dog. So that would be... Know. That, that would be a nice story. end to the story if they find yeah, this the is a really dog. Hollywood yes. tragedy and you know miracle at the same time perfect film <laughs> fodder um, a very very sad story uh, the boat carrying hundreds of migrants from Libya capsized off Greece and we still don't know the final number of um, victims there drowned but it's a really upsetting story isn't it uh, you know I didn't uh, so a, a boat a fishing boat left Libya uh, apparently with up to 750 people um they they think and um and it capsized off the greek coast and i mean there are many many questions a hundred people have been rescued um you know how how did this boat capsize well it was completely overloaded uh they think there might have been a hundred children on the boat i mean it's so tragic um so initially i there, there were sort of questions about what, why the greek coast guard was taking a long time to respond but there have also been reports that they they didn't want help from the greek coast guards because they were heading for italy um then you know subsequently today uh nine people have been arrested for people smuggling um and they were survivors from the boat so I mean the you know there are so many questions and it's it's just so tragic you know you sort of um it, it's it absolutely every tragic. summer yeah it, it, it seems to happen again and again and I know the EU is working to to uh, take the burden off countries like Greece and Italy that was last week they the um EU ministers were were meeting to to D- discuss, you know, how how to improve uh, the situation for those countries, these re- reception countries. Well, just on that point, as I mentioned last week, I was in Matera, southern Italy, for um, European Space Agency conference. Part of it was all about satellite communications and how that can aid society, um, and. We had two people from one of these reception centres in the south of Italy come and talk about the children, the teenagers that they receive. And we had examples of some of these African teenagers who have literally walked almost half a continent. The journey's been in jail, 
come over at the age of 16, they, they, some of them have never seen an iPad before. And these Italian women, in this case, try to help them learn. I mean, Anoush, it's, it's, you, you would be fascinated by this work. And I know you work with refugees here in Luxembourg as well. They try to help them learn a tiny bit of Italian. They're teaching them how to make a doctor's appointment, how to do things that our own children would not probably be able to do, given everything they have. At the it's, the stories are utterly extraordinary. And, and, and deeply upsetting as well, I must say. Yes, it's deeply upsetting because you feel that this is year. Every summer we talk about the same thing is how do we stop the boats leaving, you know, mm. and they, they only get, leave because the problems there are so enormous. They wouldn't leave if they had a better situation to stay for. Yeah, that is certainly true. Uh, but there's also networks and people who make uh, good money in organizing these uh, these routes and, and putting hundreds, if not thousands, lives um, at risk. Yeah. So there's also a criminal part. Uh, Hugely criminal element there as well. And what is also disturbing uh, with this story is not just that this boat capsized and, and many lives were lost, but apparently if, these, um, if the news is, is correct, uh, women and children were inside the boat and the men were on deck. And that is uh, doubly distressing mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, they probably did that for good reasons in the beginning, but it ended up being extremely tragic. But anyway. Yes, now, I mean, the survivors are, are men. Uh, yeah. 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 So the, the, the yeah. young men who were on top. They could, it's, yeah. it's a re- yeah, it's, yeah, it's just a, every time you kind of, you know, sometimes I, you know, I read the news every morning and sometimes you just think this is too hard uh, yeah. because it's it goes on and you you know that. It will happen again and again and again, and something you kind of feel as you know. Please, someone do something. Break I mean, I feel cycle. also feel sorry for countries like Greece, which are. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to criticise and say, "Well, the Greek coast guards didn't work fast enough." No, it's it's. Um, but they're, they're the ones who have the reception centres <laughs> and are sending out the helicopters and the search parties and all the rest of it. I see whose responsibility for them as well. But the EU is also contributing. Yeah, so yeah. Frontex, the the border uh, inspection agency, is present also with uh, with boats uh, in these waters, but. Clearly, it's uh, just not enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, the final story that we'll talk about, it's a completely different story. It's the potential legislation of cannabis in Luxembourg. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, this is another story that's been going on for absolutely ages. I think since yeah. I started on the radio, they've been talking about the legalisation of cannabis in Luxembourg. Um, but uh, it is going to be voted on now in uh, this, this month, apparently on the 26th of June. Um, but what's really interesting is that it's it's not it, they've had the government have had to do quite a lot of backpedaling. So it's not <laughs> quite the um, cannabis is legal. You know, you can smoke it everywhere. That's it. Uh, so we're a long, long way from uh, other countries models here. Um, so uh, you can you will be able to have uh, grow four plants for your own personal use, but it has to be if you're using <laughs> recreational cannabis, it has to be at home. So smoking uh, cannabis in public spaces or outside is is not allowed, and obviously the sale and all the rest of it. That, 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 so it's a very much uh, you know it's a cannabis oh. legalization light, um, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, so I, I think I think it's interesting that you know this this is going ahead, but they came across a lot of legal challenges and I I know the same is happening in Germany where different states are exploring Mm. this um, aspect of legalising and I remember about a year ago the Luxembourg government were talking about even um, growing their own cannabis Oh really? Just to try it out? the market (laughs) Uh, but uh, I think all of that has been been ditched and it's it's going to be very much for personal use in your home it's not even allowed to be visible Um, so yeah yeah. Very discreet, very for, Luxembourg. For plants. I wonder <laughs> if they've got a size limit on the plants. So <laughs> How big are your plants? <laughs> Sasha, as always, thank you so much. My pleasure. And now, with great pleasure, lovely to have you in the studio, Ambassador Thomas Lambert, who is the Ambassador of Belgium to Luxembourg. You have a fabulous uh, history, as you've mentioned. You worked uh, in, um, in Washington, in fact. In fact, tell us about that a little bit. You, you met Biden, you said Obama, and uh, you saw the start of Trump's 
Rain. Well, Obama, really, I met him a few seconds. I was at a campaigning um, dinner in, in New York. So I was posted uh, before Washington, D.C. to yeah. to New York. Um, and, and so that was just a matter of, of a handshake and, 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 and two seconds. Was the handshake strong? It was a, <laughs> a strong and very determined handshake, as should be the case with any politician campaigning. Then uh, Joe Biden, I, I met a little bit longer under very unfortunate uh, circumstances. He came to the embassy in Washington, D.C., um, uh, paying his respects. He was a vice president and paying his respects after the uh, terrorist attacks to to the airport in Brussels and the metro stations. So um, that that was the, the, the context. Mm. Um, Mr. Trump, I never met him, but um, my last eight months in Washington, D.C. were under the Trump administration. And it had a huge impact on the way we had to work as embassies because the, the usual um, way it works when an administration changes in D.C. is that the top layer, our political appointees, they move out and make place for the the other party, either the Democrats or the Republicans. And Mr. Trump uh, decided not to continue that revolving door uh, system. So that meant that the State Department, which is our usual counterpart, all of a sudden was, let's call it, decapitated. The only um, agency that continued uh, to work was uh, uh, the Pentagon. Military people, whatever the, the political... Uh, situation is they keep their chain of command. So in, in a matter of a few weeks, we had to ch shift our attention from State Department to, to the Pentagon. And where before, um, even as especially as smaller countries, you wanted to have a, a contact at State Department, it was like climbing uh, Mount Olympus. Could you please spare us a few minutes? Um, after that change, the, the tables were turned and colleagues from State Department started knocking on our door. What do you know? What do you hear? And that was absolutely fascinating. So in a matter of a few weeks, you saw how a, a whole system in a, in a democratic country was, um, was evolving very, very rapidly and in a, in a very different way. And what was the feeling within the State Department and the Pentagon about this new administration? I mean, our, our uh, American colleagues are, are great professionals, so they, uh, the last thing they would do is to start giving their personal comments. <laughs> what you Even in a friendly manner? Even in a friendly manner. I mean, as a diplomat, you need to stay professional um, and, and not let your personal views interfere with the positions you, you defend or promote for, for your country. But the, the mere fact that we got questions... Um, whereas before that it was the other way around, was quite telling. Mm -hmm. And how do countries as large as the US, as powerful as the US, treat smaller countries such as Belgium and Luxembourg? Well, we're friends and allies, so we're uh, very well treated. Um, at the same time, when you're in Washington, D.C., we call it the Great Beauty Parade uh, for diplomats. So every country has uh, its own very specific relations with, uh, with the U.S. as, as a superpower, as a, the leading country in, um, in the Western world. And so there's a bit of competition, friendly competition, um, as colleagues and friends uh, amongst each other. But no, oh, oh, we're very well treated, so there is, there is no complaining on that. And there's equal treatment between countries despite size? Well, the way we go about as uh, European countries is that we have a thing called the European Union <laughs> with a very important uh, delegation uh, to Washington, D.C. So we also work through the EU delegation mm -hmm. and that gives us a, a big leverage. And that is so we, we, we coordinate a lot on, a, on almost on a daily basis between EU embassies in D.C., and that EU, that EU delegation to Washington, D.C., gives the biggest possible leverage to smaller countries like Belgium and Luxembourg. Yeah, and in fact, you have great experience with the EU as well because you're a permanent representative to the EU in Brussels and you're head of unit for EU Budget Affairs, Economic and Monetary Union at the MFA in Brussels too. I was not the permanent representative. I worked at the permanent representation. Uh, let, me, let me correct uh -huh. that. Um, but yes, I, I did my my uh, stitch at the uh, at the EU and with the EU delegation, so I have uh, quite some experience uh, from from various angles yeah. with uh, the the EU, the way it works, the way member states work with uh, the EU. And do you feel it's efficient? 
um, it, it will never be perfect and that's normal. The same goes for, for the Belgian Foreign Affairs Department. But overall, it's, um, it's essential, even existential, for our not just our uh, foreign affairs action, but even for the functioning of our countries on a daily basis. Look at the internal market for countries like uh, the Benelux countries, uh, for starters. The internal market for open um, uh, market economies like ours, it brings us such a big extra dimension in terms of prosperity, in terms of um, uh, the way uh, you do business. So yes, um, it is absolutely crucial for all our countries. Now, like many ambassadors and people with a diplomatic background, you've lived and worked in different places. Where's your favourite place been so far? I have many favourite places, and that's a diplomatic answer, <laughs> but it's also, it's also a reality. Um, every uh, place has its uh, advantages. It also co corresponds to various stages in, in life. So uh, we had toddlers in Geneva, it was a perfect place uh, for having toddlers. Um, we had uh, young adolescents in, uh, in New York, which is a very tempting place, um, but also a very stimulating uh, place. DC is another place, um, uh, very, um, very good for, for a family to, to develop. And then my, my first uh, position as, an, as a full ambassador was Luxembourg. And that will um, uh, stay with me, with the family forever. It's a, a very comfortable place. It's a country that is very close to us, that we know very well, or at least that we think we know very well. And so uh, Luxembourg is special to us. Um, and it, it will remain the case. I, I have another uh, year um, in, in Luxembourg and then, then I will leave for another posting. Yes, well, unfortunately, you came when COVID was beginning. So that put a dampener on any activities, but things are really moving fast now. And in fact, next week you are organising quite an important conversation with uh, Luxembourg. Well, actually, it's um, we're talking about a seminar yes. that um, our embassy will be organizing next uh, Wednesday at the Spukes, uh, the former Arbet uh, headquarters, and um, it deals with the uh, a, a big Luxembourgish talent that's strategic forecasting. So it's it's about the economic and social development of uh, Luxembourg by 2015, with the perspective of Luxembourg doubling its population doubling the number of cross-border workers, etc., against the backdrop of uh, an energy transition that all our societies have to, to go through. And the, the subtitle is What Will Be the Impact on Neighbouring Belgium? Because whatever Luxembourg is planning in terms of strategic foresight, um, there will be an impact on the neighbouring countries. It's a big economic engine, uh, many people in neighbouring France, Belgium, Germany depend on the Luxembourg economy, so it's of very big importance to us as well, paramount, that Luxembourg continues to do well. Um, but the, the, the model will uh, see some challenges in, in the, the coming decades. Well, at the moment, I mean, I have only statistics from last year, there's about 25,000 Belgians living in Luxembourg. I don't know what the figure is now. Well, it increases by um, about 900 people every single year. People that move into Luxembourg, that become residents and eventually also uh, take uh, the double nationality. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that makes uh, Belgians in Luxembourg the fourth largest foreign community after the Portuguese, French and Italian nationals. So it's a really strong, very important cohort to those who live in Luxembourg, but also, as you mentioned, the cross-border workers. So you're almost dealing on a daily basis with two separate type of Belgian nationals. Exactly. And the cross-border Belgians coming into Luxembourg uh, number 50,000. And that number could more than double by 2050. And many people um, are familiar, unfortunately, with the traffic jams um, uh, from neighbouring Belgium, also France, uh, and maybe Germany. Um, if the current situation with the, the traffic problems, with the housing crisis, as we know it in Luxembourg, um, uh, 
continues with a doubling of these populations, then the big question mark is how are we going to deal with it? So we're now in 2023. We see the problem. Um, and what we want to do is bring people together to find solutions and also see, not just look at things in terms of problems to solve, but also as opportunities that, that we can find. How can we um, make sure that Luxembourg as an economic engine in, the, in a broader metropolitan area um, is something that brings benefit, not just to individuals, but also to the neighboring countries or the, the regions in the neighboring countries. And how does the cross-border working population, because Luxembourg is like an accordion, it like increases in size on a daily basis, how does it affect the joining villages and towns just across the border, the, the near Belgian border to Luxembourg? Well, in more than one way. Uh, for starters, you have, a, uh, we call it an oil stain effect of um, um, people with um, making good money in, in Luxembourg, living in neighbouring Belgium, but pushing up uh, the prices, real estate, uh, for instance. There's a, another uh, movement of young Luxembourgers that um, have problems in affording real estate in, in their own country and then decide we move into neighbouring Belgium where we have better prices. But um, that, that is a second push uh, to, to, to the price level of, of real estate. And then, so we see this, this movement um, move further into Belgium. And it, it is a very complex phenomenon. Um, I, I, we, we did not yet mention the, the T word, uh, télétravail. So the, uh, yes. the working from home and the number of, of days that uh, people would be allowed to, to work from, from home. But that brings with it um, uh, an effect whereby people can uh, stay in Belgium much further, even going to, to Namur and say, well, if I have to, to work only three days in Luxembourg, then I can just as well stay in Namur. I don't have to live in, in uh, Abbe or L'Eglise or, or uh, Aubange. Yeah, closer to the border. Yeah. yeah, so that oil spill is like uh, permeating further out. Um, but there are positives as well. So when we have this seminar next week, can you give us any hints about what will be discussed? What are the, the various kind of keynote topics? Well, the introduction will be... Um, some presentations of numbers, figures and statistics. It's very important to have that as benchmarks. So what are the projections in terms of population, in terms of housing prices, etc. And then we bring people uh, together from the Luxembourgish and the Belgian side, decision makers, policy planners, who will then start uh, giving their, their various perspectives. We do not have the ambition, it would be very arrogant even, to, to try to find solutions just yet. This seminar uh, serves as an um, awareness-raising platform that is the start of a number of meetings um, so that we, we establish a network of, of thinking and talking heads that uh, develop common solutions. And is this happening in collaboration with the French border and German border as well? No, not yet. That is something that is on the radar, but at, uh, at present, since we start this initiative, we first want to do it in a bilateral dimension because uh, in the end, Belgium and Luxembourg have something unique, which is the uh, 101-year-old Belgian-Luxembourg Economic Union. We also have a set of uh, political rendezvous uh, at the level of the, the two governments and, and uh, diplomats, uh, foreign affairs officials uh, who meet uh, twice a year just to discuss everything that is of common interest. Yeah. Well, you touched on two really important topics that will, of course, change lives and quality of life. One is housing and one is transport. So do you have any thoughts on how this can be fixed? Is too, too optimistic a word. Um, thought about. Well, let me start with housing first. Yes, please uh, do. I do not have ready-made uh, solutions, but I think it would be wise if uh, officials and planners, politicians would uh, start talking about organizing your urbanism, your meaning Luxembourgish and Belgian urbanism, also in a broader cross-border setting. In, in, instead of segmenting uh, whatever you do, per member state or per state. Um, there are many very good arguments 
that would bring us to sit together and to make a broader planning in a metropolitan area. Perhaps not, perhaps not in the Grande Région because that is really a way too big. But you can, on, on, the, um, on the basis of economic parameters, you can determine a broader, I call it a metropolitan region around Luxembourg and in the adjacent areas of uh, uh, France, uh, Germany and, and Belgium. And then transport, yes, we're... That's a headache for my embassy on a, on a weekly basis. The train. Yes. You didn't mention <laughs> it. And I didn't mention it. <laughs> what is the it's problem? It's just hiding yes. under the surface. But thank uh, thank you for being so polite and considerate. <laughs> but I bring it up because you, you, you would bring it up yourself. And uh, I do sympathize um, with the train issue. My very own family is a, is a weekly victim of, uh, of the slow train. We have a son who is at boarding school in Ghent and comes uh, comes home in the weekends not from brussels from ghent so he's adding um, um uh, another leg another leg to, <laughs> to that so we are working on that um not just between the two countries also with the european investment bank because financing is an important issue if you want the train to run faster you need to stop it less which is a political issue in Belgium because then all the train stations where it stops uh, at present we will have to uh, disappoint uh, several uh, of them. Well, not all the time. You can have some that stop and some that don't. Yes, uh, it's it, that is a technical issue. And then secondly, if you want the train to run faster, you need to strengthen all these little stations uh, because the, the, the vibrations will be uh, much stronger. You also have to, and, and uh, the work is ongoing as I speak, you have to double the electrification capacity from Brussels to, to Luxembourg. And so it's an issue that takes a lot of time and, but we're confident that by 2028, we should be able to win 30 minutes. Oh, well, <laughs> oh. I, was, I was hoping however, for something more than that. <laughs> however, there is a bigger opportunity to the extent that in the European Union, we all want to, to, to discourage taking the, the airplane for shorter distances. Mm -hmm. it, it opens a big window of and opportunity the and the car. Mm -hmm. But the big window of opportunity is there for train connections, long, um, uh, long term uh, or, or long stretch uh, train connections. For instance, Brussels to Milano, over Strasbourg and, and Luxembourg. That would bring in a perspective of having a, maybe not a TGV, but at least um, a fast train, maybe a night train. And that would also help uh, Luxembourg. <laughs> it gives us other cross-border options there when you mention Milan and Strasbourg. <laughs> um, I want to turn to something completely different, uh, but it fascinates me. You're a Navy reservist. Yes, uh, yes, I am. Yeah. So talk to us about what that means. What it means is that, so I'm in, in the active uh, reserve. I... Um, a couple of days per year, I uh, I also work for for the navy and and for the defense uh, ministry in uh, in Belgium. That can be done on the spot or that can be done uh, from distance. We live in a digital era, so some of the 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 reporting or analysis that uh, that I work on can be done from from Luxembourg. I don't have to to leave my house for that, and and I don't need the the, the seaside for that. Yeah, the water. Well, I mentioned this because, in fact, another thing that you work on are conversations around the military integration between Belgium and Luxembourg. So, again, um, I suppose most of us here don't know so much about the military organisation that Luxembourg has. We might know a small amount. We know there's an army. <laughs> That's about the extent of my knowledge. Um, and I think up until a couple of years ago, Many Europeans might have thought, we don't really need that so much until what happened in Ukraine, of course. Yes. So, can you talk to us about uh, the military integration between Belgium and Luxembourg? And yes, I, of course I can. And the timing is just, just perfect because yesterday in Brussels we signed a, an agreement on further integration of the two armed forces. We are in the process of creating a common battalion that is between 400 and 600 uh, um, people strong. Um, it's, it's called a combat recce battalion. We, we, it's, it's quite unique. We, have, um, we will be making, creating um, 
a joint unit, a battalion of 50-50, so Belgian and Luxembourgish military personnel. And it will be based in Arlon, Dikirch and Marchand Famen. Um, and it is a very important uh, project for Luxembourg and for us. It, um, we see it as a building block for further European integration. Um, we make sure that it is compatible with another project uh, we are part of, the, the, the CAMO project with France. So it's uh, an, an, um, an army project um, so that we can just uh, plug in the little bricks and become part of a broader European common uh, defense efforts. And I believe that is the future of armed forces in Europe. Instead of doing everything on our own, um, working with the neighbors, planning, training, even fighting with the neighbors is the future. Belgium has more or less merged its navy with the Dutch navy. When you say fighting with the neighbors, what do you mean? No, not fighting together <laughs> oh, fighting with together. the neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We only fight with our neighbors over a beer, and okay, that's, uh, that's always that's very fine. friendly. That's fine. That's no, no, joining together has all sorts of benefits. I can, I can see that. Um, I, bringing it back to the navy again, uh, not entirely linked, but um, Belgium recently organised a North Sea summit, and exactly. um, this is also very dear to my heart, about protecting the seabed and subsea critical infrastructure that's related to, of course, energy, etc. So, talk to us about this North Sea summit that Belgium organised. So our Prime Minister took the initiative of inviting all uh, North Sea states, including Luxembourg. Yeah. Uh, Luxembourg is a, is a full member and, and much esteemed member of the Benelux. And Luxembourg is also investing in a, uh, an energy island of the Danish coast. Oh. Um, that is... Uh, Probably less known, but it, it's quite unique. And so it has a vested interest in what we will be doing with the North Sea. It's part of the energy transition that all our societies have to go through, whether you're landlocked or not. It doesn't make any difference. And Luxembourg is, is uh, taking up its responsibility in order to, um, to have more um, sustainable energy sources. Also coming from wind energy in the North Sea. And we have uh, all... Uh, North Sea states have big projects with the North Sea, turning it uh, in part into an energy factory with uh, wind farms, fixed maybe later, uh, also mobile wind farms. And that is connecting all these countries together through a grid um, that is very good. It, it brings um, excellent perspectives for um, having more sustainable energy models at the same time and against the backdrop of the of the Russia uh, the tensions with Russia it also increases our vulnerability and we see on a weekly basis how uh, russian vessels sail by russian uh, government vessels sail sail by uh, the, the the belgian coast in the north sea um, with a quite special sailing pattern which is not always very normal. And what we believe is that they are trying to, to map the subsea infrastructure, either because they really want to map it or because they want to intimidate us. But they are there with specialized vessels of whom we know that they have a capacity of disrupting, uh, first and foremost, of mapping what we have underwater, but also of potentially disrupting it. And that is a big vulnerability. So we're talking about um, energy cables, be it gas pipelines, remember Nord Stream, electricity cables, but also digital cables. And there we are very vulnerable. 98% of all data um, communications on this planet goes through subsea cables. It's not via satellites. And that means 10 trillions of dollars or euros uh, per day of financial transactions and there uh, it is uh, th that is why Luxembourg should be interested as a leading financial center if you have a disruption of um, data transactions financial transactions for even a minute or, or an hour it could be extremely disruptive even provoke a, a stock market crash it is of paramount importance and that is why we took the initiative of Two things, um, creating this energy dimension, the, the potential of the North Sea, but secondly, also looking together at how we can protect that 
infrastructure. We cannot do it on our own as Belgium. You need to do that with all your neighbors, all, all of us together. That's terribly worrying. It's so interesting. I didn't fascinating. Have, I didn't know anything and about frightening. this. Yes, <laughs> fascinating and frightening. I think you've summed it up. Oh my goodness! Well, uh, could you leave us with a positive note? Well, we are aware <laughs> of the problem, and we will be fixing it. Um, well. There is no real and well, there is there is a real danger, but it's it's not an an, um, an actual danger. So now we know what the problem is. We start working for the solutions yeah. and. Uh, yeah. We will get there. I wonder how you can hide them from subsea mapping. Well, most of these cables, um, we know where they are. Our Russian friends probably also. also where, they are. <laughs> where they're much deeper, um, it's less obvious where, where they are because there are subsea movements. Um, but that's also kind of a, a protection. So the, 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 the biggest vulnerability is in the territorial waters and in the, the waters closer to shore. But there we have the means to, to observe uh, whatever movements uh, Russian ships may, may do uh, on, uh, at the surface or, or below the surface. Mm -hmm, but not from the air. Uh, well, Ambassador, thank you so much. You're very welcome. So much fascinating information there. And, uh, and next up, we're going to talk to Anoush about the Luxembourg Tech School. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, Dr. Anoush Manukan has been working with the Luxembourg Tech School since its initiation. In fact, how many years is that now? Uh, it's uh, seven years, actually. Seven years. It's gone by so quickly. And you are at the cohort. You've, you've got your PhD in AI robotics, I believe. And uh, you are a female face, a leader when it comes to the need for tech. And given everything Ambassador Lambert has just talked to us about, there is a huge need for tech and how to protect it, etc. I don't know if you uh, have any thoughts on what he was just discussing. Uh, well, I think it's uh, really scary, but also this also adds the importance of uh, tech education, especially to start it as younger as possible to teach uh, the students um, about all these no new technologies, new tools that come out uh, uh, to prepare them for for everything. <laughs> and for those who may not have heard about the Luxembourg Tech School, give us a flavour of what you do. So Luxembourg Tech School has been founded on 2016. Uh, we, uh, it started as one year long extracurricular program for high school students in Luxembourg. And now we have three main programs um, and also some extra activities that come along with that, uh, like uh, some special uh, workshops and classes for uh, uh, students with some special needs or for refugee students and so on. Uh, main programs, um, they are uh, covering all the ages between 12 to 18. Uh, the first year is uh, called a level go, uh, which is for students uh, aged between 12 to 14, where they learn about technology and how to create art using technology. Um, after they start uh, our second year, uh, which is uh, actually level one, because we started with level one, and um, this program is focused for more uh, students between aged between 15 to 18, and there they learn, uh, they dive into game development and uh, uh, big data, uh, fintech, uh, financial technologies. Um, and after, if they complete the year, they can continue to uh, a little bit more advanced tech, which is space resources, where they learn about uh, robotics uh, and the importance of space resources. Uh, they learn about uh, AI for finances, uh, all the algorithms that are behind. Uh, and uh, at the end, uh, they have the uh, one of the funnest module, which is AI creativity and arts, that, uh, it, and discovers how to create art using AI. However, uh, because uh, we try to um, follow all the advancements in technology and not uh, just to keep the content all the time the same, this year we are going to bring big changes in our uh, content and um, introducing even uh, more new technology that came out uh, recently. For example, uh, emerging tech, uh, which uh, will cover about uh, AR, augmented reality, virtual reality, and even brain computing interfaces, um, as well as uh, introducing um, AI everywhere. So uh, because 
it is everywhere. We live with AI at the moment and uh, many times our students don't know about it. When we ask them and we want that they know exactly uh, what is AI and uh, how it is used at the moment in their life. I think you could almost open up a couple of lessons for the adults as well. <laughs> um, and I know the LTS, the Luxembourg Tech School, was founded by Sergio Cornado, but he always talks about it being a team effort. He's he's very good on that. But it was founded because this education was not being provided in schools and he could see that it wasn't being provided and he also very strongly believes in teamwork and he very strongly believes in project-led work and has a very strong connection with the businesses in Luxembourg. So I know that you you often hold hackathons at very prestigious locations. Uh, yes, and um, actually this is the way when uh, we say that uh, um, LTS, its main aim is not to uh, create future coders, but more future digital leaders. That's why the program is itself called uh, Future Digital Leader Program. Um, and uh, by saying that is that uh, from day one, the students, when they join LTS, uh, they start working on projects from day one. They don't have any traditional lessons, lectures and so on. So they start working on their own projects, which also helps them to keep motivated and to uh, keep going on because they work on something that they really wanted, maybe years, uh, even for years. And uh, they learn all the new technologies while working on the project. And they do it uh, in a team uh, where one person is the project manager and uh, others have also their roles. One is the artist, another one is uh, researcher. So we also give the opportunity that uh, they um, uh, they express themselves and uh, not only focus on uh, coding, for example, but also if uh, they are interested more in art, then we give, give them all the resources to learn art. Uh, so this is also very important uh, for us. Uh, and important for people who might want to register to not be put off because they don't have to come as a coder or be a computer geek, whatever that might mean these days. Uh, but it's open to literally everybody. Exactly. This is open for every student in Luxembourg for uh, if they are in private school or public school. Uh, so and uh, also what I want to say that uh, at LTS, uh, the coaches, uh, they have very important role because uh, we make them available for students every time, day and night. And we really try to give them all the support if uh, they need, uh, they don't understand something. We try to help them um, in any way possible, uh, providing different resources sources and so on and they know that uh, uh, like we are not there to judge them or grade them but uh, more to support them and see where they need the help and then push them to really uh, be able to work on their full, full potential. And the reason we're having this conversation right now is because registration is open for the next academic year. Exactly. We, we should say it's free as well. It's free. It's completely free. And registration opens only once a year. And this is very important because it's open right now. And the deadline is 26 June. So, um, And uh, the, then the year starts uh, the end of September. Um, uh, and also, uh, our team is growing. Uh, so um, uh, now next year, we'll have even more students, even more schools will be involved uh, and we'll have LTS classes. Uh, so we also look for uh, coaches. Uh, we always look for people who are interested in tech. It's not necessarily that they should have tech background, but tech enthusiasts who are eager to learn new technologies. Uh, so we are, we are also happy uh, to hear from uh, them who would like to join LTS as coaches. And also all the information is provided in our website, which is techschool.lu. Uh, and um, everyone who would like to get in touch, uh, they can also uh, reach us out on our social medias or yeah, drop a message on, uh, on the website. And it's, it's great, like you said, the project work, I know because I've seen some of these hackathons, the students then have to present in front of people uh, and, and in front of people who really are decision makers in Luxembourg. So they get great access to people as well. So wonderful opportunities for Luxembourg as well, work experience within Luxembourg, I should say. Anoush, thank you so much for that. Sasha, have you any thoughts on today's conversations? 
Oh, lots, lots of thoughts. <laughs> Again, I, I could do with enhancing my digital uh, knowledge for sure. So uh, we, yes, we we're all signed up. Uh, are all the languages? Uh, do you offer the classes in all languages? Is it in English or just French? Uh, so the main language is English because oh, okay. we believe that uh, the language for business is English. Um, but we have coaches that uh, are Luxembourgish, or uh, so uh, we have coaches who speak all the languages that are available in Luxembourg. Speaking coach speak. Uh, f- Spanish, uh, Portuguese, uh, French, uh, Luxembourgish, of course. Uh, but we encourage them to speak in English. And since the uh, uh, the projects are done in uh, in a team, uh, if one member is not able to speak really well English, uh, then they try because their friends help them. And uh, at the end of the year, we see so big improvement, not only in tech, but also in language. I think Lisa can confirm. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. It's truly wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, because we keep being told that, uh, you know, it's things like like ChatGPT, uh, they are frightening again, but we need to learn how to work with it. So, you know, even in our jobs now is to work with it, not just uh, ignore it. Uh, we think that it's very important actually to teach them all those tools. Uh, we get uh, often asked by the teachers that uh, how what is going to happen. But we think that if they learn how to use it for their benefits, uh, that will be really great. Anoush, I know we could talk for hours over this and we will have you back Thank you so much, Ambassador. Thank you, Anoush. Thank you, as always, Sasha. And thank you, dear listeners, dear watchers. And we'll be back again with another show next week. 